I'm doing this in a bathroom in San Carlos, Sonora, Mexico. Hello, my friends. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, Taco Cowboy, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Randall Wilhite, a partner at Fullen Wider Wilhite. I'll spell it for you at the end. They specialize in divorce law. And since I'm getting married this year, lots of things related to marriage are going through my mind, and that includes prenups. This is one of my favorite episodes so far this year. It's definitely not what you're going to be expecting. Some amazing and wild stories in here. If you've ever wanted to learn about prenups, divorces, and how to keep an amazing relationship going strong, you'll love this episode. There's so many crazy examples. In this conversation, you're going to learn three major things. Number one, most common reasons for divorce. Number two, keys to healthy relationships and some unhealthy prenup stories. And number three, how prenups actually work and key things to consider before getting one. Enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, go check out halldrop.com to find the latest products online. Halldrop is something we created similar to AppSumo, but it is for only physical products, and we also have some amazing giveaways and deals on them. Go to halldrop.com. And a special pre-show shout-out to listener Luis Corville of the USA. They love to review saying, I love marketing tips. Aw, yeah. Thank you so much, Luis. If you want to shout out in a future episode, you know what to do. Leave an iTunes review. I check every single one. So what's the last time someone came to your office and they're like hostile? You know, it was probably like two or three years ago. Some guy came in. I was the managing partner of the firm. He wasn't looking for me, but he was looking for one of our female associates who was on the other side of the case from him, was representing his wife. And he was very, very hostile and loud and aggressive. And we just called security and security came up and very nicely diffused the situation and removed him from the law firm. But you just never know. Divorce, you know, the breakup of a family, especially betrayal and all the things that go with that, evokes a lot of emotions and it'll bring out mental illness too. Yeah. Yeah. Just because it's so devastating to some people. How is this what you wanted to do? I was working at a law firm and they did divorce work when I was going to law school. And a third of the law firm did criminal defense work, a third of the law firm did family law work, and a third of the law firm did plaintiff's personal injury work. And I just sort of fell into that, those three buckets, was doing all three of those, but predominantly white collar criminal defense work and family law, and then decided that I just didn't like criminal defense work much. It was too hard. I found that the, uh, the grand juries don't randomly indict people, that there's typically a reason for it, but not always. And I had a bad experience with one of my few people that I represented that I truly thought was genuinely innocent. And what happened? He was picked up on a wiretap from three of his friends who were being wiretapped by the federal government because they were in a conspiracy to bribe a United States senator. Though my client was not, he got picked up in their wiretaps. And then 10 months after the last wiretap, he is subpoenaed to the grand jury to testify about his friends. And the prosecutor thought that he knew more than what he was saying. I don't know if he did or not. But every time he deviated from a phone call that had occurred 10 months ago. So think about a phone call you had in April of last year. And you're being questioned about the details of it. Every time it was different from what the transcript was from the recording was a count of perjury. Seven counts of perjury. He was found not guilty of six, guilty of one. He was sentenced to 10 months in a prison. He was an older man, Yale graduate, friend of President Bush, number 41. Grew up with him, not grew up with him, but went to school with him. No lawsuits, no criminal problems, an older man in his 70s, and not in good health. So I appealed it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. And the essence of my brief was that he was an innocent man, wrongly convicted of a crime he did not commit. I really thought he was genuinely innocent, just a mistake by the jury and the judge. And the Fifth Circuit looked at it for a long time and said, no, we think there was enough evidence for the jury to come to their conclusion. So I appealed it to the United States Supreme Court. And Drew is my opponent, a man named Kenneth Starr, who ended up being the prosecutor for the, you know, Clinton. And they looked at it for a while and decided uh, not to take the case. So that was such a bad experience for me. I decided I'm just going to get out of white collar criminal defense work. I was doing tax fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud, conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and lengthy, lengthy multi-month trials involving yeah. white collar bank fraud and tax fraud mainly. You got turned off from it because you thought it wasn't fair? Like you felt like, hey, this guy was genuinely innocent and then somehow the system is putting him in a place where he's not? Yeah, I mean, that's really what it was. And I was contrasting that with a setting where I would from time to time be called upon to represent somebody who was um, charged with selling drugs and he would get uh, probation and uh, a $4,000 fine for selling drugs to an undercover agent. 
And this gentleman, this older gentleman, you know, a businessman, would actually go to, to a federal prison for 10 months. He actually went, he was so sick, he went to a federal hospital for 10 months. They actually healed him. And he came out a better man and ready to go. But still, it just was such a contrast of how the drug dealer was going free and how my, you know, you develop a friendship. I'll call him a friend. How my friend who I was representing in this white collar perjury crime, I just thought it was totally unfair. I think back to the conversations I had 10 months ago in April of last year. I could not withstand any sort of scrutiny of what was said in a conversation that lasted a few minutes last April. It's always kind of amazing with the with trials and things like that. It's like, what did you do this day years ago? One of the things I'm curious about is that is there really an advantage to just being so much wealthier in a lot of these cases? Because when you said, "Well, I defend all these you know these people," and it's like they have a lot of money, they can have someone amazing like you or you know at your level get them out of things. And then for you to say that that was interesting as well. Like, well, even if you have someone like me, you still may be guilty, even if it's not. Yeah, true. yeah, you never know. But yeah, there's a distinct advantage to having money to pay for legal assistance. The devil's in the details and um, having the opportunity to put a lot of resources into something from an investigation point of view to learn the case, to prepare. You know, preparation is a lot of it. And if you have the resources to pay somebody to prepare and the resources to pay somebody who's got experience and talent, you're going to get a better product and generally have a better result. It's like everything else. It's interesting, though, because you go to a court where it's supposed to be fair and just, but then is it really fair if some people have an advantage? One thing I've been trying to think about recently, I took a, a safety class, self-defense class, and they're like, if you have a gun, which I carry at times, and they said, well, if you ever shoot at any time, anywhere, call your lawyer right there. I was like, I don't really have a lawyer to call. So I was trying to think, how do you find the lawyer that you think will be the best in, in these different instances? You know, I think you need to have a friend who is a lawyer who has represented some people in some form of criminal activity. And I think, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Your just question there reminded me of a day I was driving to law school here at the University of Texas. And I was coming out of the AT&T Conference Center, driving up on University Boulevard, and right in front of me was the tower. And I hear to my left five shots, five boom, 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 boom. And I thought, construction noise. And then I see in front of me, all these kids are jumping behind trees and fountains and trash cans. And I'm thinking how sad it is that our country or our culture has gotten to a point where they hear construction noise and they think it's a gun. And then to my left, out of my left peripheral vision, here comes a guy in a black suit with a black tie and a white shirt, tennis shoes and a mask on his face. And he's got an AK-47. And he has just fired five shots into the Catholic Student Union on the UT campus. This was about five years ago. And then he's right in front of me. I'm in my car. I'm like processing about eight seconds late, which is what I find that you sometimes do in a situation that's essentially surreal. And he turns and fires three shots to my left. And I kind of watch him hit. And I'm standing there watching him. Then he runs down into the campus. I'm thinking, is this a joke? Are there more people? Is this a group of people? I'm trying to process what's going on. I circle back to the AT&T Conference Center, kind of catch my thoughts, call the UT police race around the campus to the law school, run upstairs to my class and say, everybody stay here. I don't know what's going on, but there's been shots fired. There's a man on the campus with an AK-47. At least that's what it looked like to me. And they were starting to get text messages from UT and from their friends to shelter in place. I went into a room next door to kind of catch my breath and catch my thoughts. This is the interesting part. My cell phone ringed. This is probably no more than 10 or 12 minutes after this had happened to me. And it's a 212 area code, New York City. So I take the call and it's CNN. Professor Wilhite, I said, yes, hold please. So I'm on hold and it's CNN. You can hear, they've already got my phone. They're already calling me within about 12 minutes. And then about two minutes of being on hold, they patch me into worldwide CNN. We have Professor Wilhite here from the University of Texas School of Law. We understand you've just been involved in a shooting. Amazing how fast they got my cell number. I later learned it was very likely from the UT police, but that is speculation. I don't know because I just called them. Unfortunately, that guy, crazy enough to do what he had done, could have been just a little crazier and taken out. He had 35 rounds in his magazine. He walked up six flights of stairs where he used to study at the undergraduate library there on Speedway at 21st, and he turned the gun on himself and shot himself, killed him with one shot, killed himself. FBI and everybody did a complete background on him, found nothing, nothing in his search history, no notes he had taken, no trauma that he was suffering. No explanation whatsoever for that. The interesting part about that, I found two years ago, maybe three years ago, I've kind of lost track. The Daily Texan called me up and said, would you write a story about what happened that day? And what was interesting to me as I relived that story, I had two alternate realities. 
that's really happened to me. And I, you hear about the uh, insecurity people have with eyewitness testimony, and I've never really quite understood that, but it's really not that strong. One reality is what I just told you. Another reality is that no shots were taken towards me. I had both of them, and I distinctly remember seeing the shots to my left, and I distinctly remember not having the shots. Isn't that interesting? And I wrote about that and how the weakness there is of testimony from a witness who's ex- is seeing something in a surreal setting, how your mind can stop processing and or process something that did or did not happen. And I've seen it also sometimes in my practice. The eyewitness testimony, so many articles and stories and research has been done about how flawed it is. To this day, I have both memories. That's wild. It's really crazy. This whole conversation is going to be about prenuptial yeah, agreements. And, and We can move into that. No, no, no. And I, I actually, this stuff is just interesting. Lately, I've been fascinated with serial killers. Like if you go on podcasts, like the top 10 podcasts, like two or three are like serial killer podcasts. Mm-hmm. There's an author named John Douglas. Yeah. Him and Roy Hazelwood have been writing. They have written, I didn't realize they have so many books. So I just finished one about BTK, this guy in uh, Wichita. It's interesting related to the law system because now you're having people's opinion about these things where it sounds like it's hard to say what was the truth of some of the, the situation. Yeah. There's been you know artificial studies done where somebody comes into a classroom full of students and does something or says something that's remarkable. You know, attacks the professor. It's all set up. Runs in with a gorilla suit on and starts yelling. And then they later interview everybody and how different the stories are from what people saw. Just really crazy because you see something out of the ordinary, your mind doesn't process it that well. So how do we fix the court system if that's the case? I mean, obviously we use there's evidence and other things, but when we're using testimony, what's happening now? Thank goodness, and the Innocence Project is allowing a lot of DNA evaluation of all sorts of different kinds of eyewitness testimony that swears he was the killer or the rapist or who robbed me at gunpoint or who shot me. Forensic DNA technology is now allowing a lot of these people who are wrongly convicted to be freed from prison. There was a story this week about it. And this gets back into my practice. I represented the lady of an extraordinarily wealthy family, and she felt that her husband was having an affair. And she came to me and she goes, Randy, you have no budget. There is no amount of money that you cannot spend. I want you to research and see if my husband was having an affair. Do anything you have to do. Private investigators, everything. There's no limit to what you can spend. She was that angry and that suspicious. And I learned from that exercise just how often we're on a camera. It's amazing how often human beings are on a camera. Everywhere there's cameras, you know, security cameras. It's amazing. Homeland Security has cameras through the streets, through the streets of Austin, through the streets of Houston, particularly through the streets of New York City and, you know, some of the bigger cities that are terrorist risk. But, you know, uh, Jesse Smollett got picked up on a few, you know, random cameras that sort of outed him from his little episode in wherever that was, Chicago, Chicago yeah. a couple of years ago or whenever that was. Amazingly, what the one that really got us was, or got him, was at a Valero. <laughs> he had an American Express black card. And when you scan your American Express, it, it not just charges it, but it records to the hundredth of a second what time of the day it was. It's like 2.37.62 p.m. If you can catch it fast enough, you subpoena the security camera for the Valero, where he had swiped his card a few days earlier, because they do repeat themselves in about every two weeks. So get him within about two weeks, you can see who he's with. And he was with his girlfriend. So we caught him there, caught him in a Neiman Marcus with the girlfriend. All through major department stores, you're being surveilled through gas stations, convenience stores. It wouldn't surprise me if the building in which we're having our, our meeting today has security surveillance cameras. They're just everywhere. One, how do you subpoena for a camera of like a Valero or of a Neiman Marcus? Well, if you have a, an active case going on, and we did, we had the jurisdiction of a court and the court through the lawyers can issue a subpoena. We're allowed to do it as, you know, quote, officers of the court. We can issue a subpoena on behalf of the judge now. It used to be you have to go to the judge and do it, but now we do it ourselves. We just issue a subpoena and it's served on the Valero. And a lot of times they work with you. You know, the security person at Neiman Marcus will work with you and the Valero manager will say, okay, here it is. Huh, that sounds like a lot of power. Like you could just subpoena whatever you want. It has to be, I guess, related to the case. Yeah. I would just start related. subpoenaing everybody. I'm like, oh, I want a, I want a hamburger here. I want- <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's got to be related to, uh, okay. to, you know, germane to the litigation involved. Uh, uh, you can't just do it for any random reason. And then what ended up happening with the case? Did she just have a feeling? It ended up settling, but with the information that we had and about some lies that he had told about not having an affair. And when we presented his lawyers with what we had, the case was quickly and quietly settled. How much more did it cost him to divorce and settle if he didn't have the girlfriend? This lady was enormously wealthy by inheritance, nine-figure net worth, liquid, 
And most of the property that was in their marriage was her separate property because she had acquired it through inheritance. So what was community property was relatively small. In their world, a few million dollars, relatively small. And she was able to get most of that of their community property, even though she had a giant separate estate. So how much more did that cost? Several hundred thousand dollars, just the investigation work, because we had a lot of misses. We have a lot of misses. You know, there, I, I told you, went right to the hit on Valero, and we had a hit in Neiman Marcus. But it's a lot of times, he's swiping his card alone at a Walmart, you know, and there's nothing there to get. But you're doing the subpoena and then watching the video. And, uh-huh. was- and you have to kind of do it strategically because you don't want him to know that you're issuing the subpoena. So you have to, you know, follow him for like several days in a row, get those swipes, go back to the places, find out who's he with. Do most people go to that level of like, oh no, it's vengeance or how you'd call it like redemption? A lot of people hold this quest for redemption or vengeance, but they can't act on it. And eventually, you know, the trauma of what's causing their angst subsides over time, but not always. There's nothing you can do about it in most instances. And people cope with it and they move on. Sometimes the super wealthy can, like this lady, and I have some others who just want to ruin the other person's life because the other person has betrayed them. Usually with another woman or another man, that evokes extraordinary emotion in a marriage relationship or any sort of committed relationship. But I see it a lot. In fact, in courts, particularly Travis County, but throughout Texas where I practice, a lot of judges are sort of getting tired of hearing evidence about an affair. It's like, I understand, Mr. Wilhite, the husband's had an affair. I get it. Move on. We don't need to be wasting court time about that. And the reason is, you know, I've been doing this since 79, so that is 40, over 40 years, and I see a lessening significance in the courts attributed to affairs. And I think that's because they're really prevalent in divorce settings. I would say the majority of my cases that I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them, involve some sort of marital infidelity. And judges, when they hear that over and over and over again, they say, okay, I got it. There's been an affair. Now, tell me what's out there. Let's get it divided. Let's figure out what's separate property. Let's move on. I've been in a few court cases, and one of them was our largest competitor sued us. Oh, wow. And uh, during this uh, mediation, it was like, we're never going to settle. F you, F you, you. And then at the end of the day, it was like, all right, yeah, we'll settle. (laughs) (laughs) And it was interesting that to separate the emotion from the, we all do want to move forward with our lives, but there's definitely that emotion gets built into it. Yeah. And there's something cathartic about saying that, processing it, allowing your emotions to express Mm. it, and then having it subside and descend into reality or ascend into reality, I should say, and say, all right, we need to move on. We need to turn the corner. We need to pay something to get this behind us. Did you ever defend someone that that said they were guilty? Because you said you defended this guy who was innocent, but he got busted. You ever defend anyone who's like, yo, I really did it. Can you get me off? I would say, I really did it. Can you help me out? And I would do that. Like, for example, I would try to negotiate a plea bargain for somebody who has was clearly guilty, admitted their guilt, and wanted to just to work out some sort of a settlement, like a settlement of a civil case. You know, I'll pay a fine, I'll do some probation, and then just get me past this moment. So I've done that, but I've never gone, I never went to trial and lied to a jury about my client being an innocent man, you know, wrongly accused. Would not do that. I think some lawyers would, and I don't fault them at all for that because they have to represent their client. But invariably, you know, the interesting part about the criminal defendants that I represented is that I think most of them truly believed they were innocent. Truly, even when the, the evidence in some ways was overwhelming that they were guilty. Now, the white collar crimes are things like misreporting items on your tax return or not reporting income on your tax return. That can be criminal tax fraud. And they always have reasons and justifications and rationales for why they did what they did. And they kind of sell themselves on it and they believe their own defense, if you will. So they don't come in and say they're guilty. I had a seven and a half month long trial once in Lubbock, Texas with seven defendants thousands of exhibits, probably 15 or 20 defense attorneys, four prosecutors from Washington, D.C. came in to try the case. All seven defendants rested right behind the government. Now, there's nobody put on a case for defense. And the jury in that case deliberated uh, a couple hours on Friday night to pick a four-person. And they deliberated five days on the first week, five days on the second week, five days on the third week. And on the Wednesday of the fourth, or if you want to count that Friday, fifth, week of jury deliberation, the judge declared a mistrial because the jury was hung 11 to 1 for guilty. There was one man and 11 women. And the one man thought all seven defendants were all not guilty of all 172 counts. It's a 144-page indictment, 172 counts, 5,000 exhibits, 
probably 135 witnesses. So it's very clear they were guilty. There was no defense. Nobody put up a defense. How did he justify that they were innocent? My client, if he was here today on a polygraph test and you ask him, were you guilty? He would say no, <laughs> and it would be a flat line across. It was a form of bank fraud that was done through a lot of paper shuffling and appraisals and tax returns and loan applications. And it was all kind of circular and it was hard to discover. But once it was discovered and you saw it in the big picture, you could see what was going on. By the way, all seven of those defendants were retried and they were all found guilty. Well, I thought you can't have double jeopardy. Well, mistrial is not considered jeopardy. If there's been a mistrial, you can retry. A mistrial is for a hung jury. The government decided to re-prosecute them in separate trials. And uh, I was fortunate enough not to have to try it the second time. And you're talking about that woman who would go to any limits. I guess I was curious, like, how far can you ruin someone in a prenup or in a divorce setting? And then what's maybe the, some of the crazier things that uh, you've seen people do? There's laws that, that make things generally fair. Texas has a series of laws and they're designed to generate a fair result, but not always. Everything is case specific. You know, the few that come to mind is I had a client when he was many years ago as a young man, formed a company for $1,000, which you could do. You could go to the Secretary of State's office, put up $1,000, form a company and receive all the shares of stock. He did that. I won't give you any names on this, but six months later, he married someone. He was married to her for 25 years. And during that 25 years, that company that he formed six months before marriage went public and he eventually sold his share of that public company for $540 million. And that was his net after-tax amount. And then he invested that into four other companies that made him a multi-billionaire. Because all of that extraordinary wealth could be traced back to a $1,000 purchase made of shares of stock before marriage, Texas law would say that that's all his separate property. Isn't that amazing? We hired the best accountants to come in and trace all that back. And it all, all of his extraordinary wealth with these four very large companies were traced back to this original $1,000. That's an instance where he had plenty of money, can hire the accountants, can get a team of lawyers involved and prove that it was all his. Now, he was very generous to his wife in a sense. He gave her a nice settlement, but nothing anywhere close to the half of the plural billions of dollars that were accumulated during their marriage. There are instances where, although the law is designed to be fair, it's not as applied. One of my thoughts was like, well, that accounts for the 540, but any of that investment afterwards, I would think would be split. That's reasonable. And in fact, a lot of people would say in many states other than Texas would say also that because the $540 million was really grown from basically $1,000 to that point during marriage, that it should be a form of marital property because the wife was there. She was there for 25 years, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, going out as a team, as a unit, you know, into the world yeah. as a family. And then she comes up and has does no rights in it because of a fortuity, a quirk that this company would happen to have been formed a few months before their marriage. So, you know, there are instances where things can be unfair. I'm a CPA as well as a lawyer. So I have kind of a left brain. I look at things uh, analytically. And I usually put a team of people on a project and we pride ourselves in preparation. And you can take advantage of people who aren't as prepared. And not that we do that, but it gives you an advantage to come in knowing the facts of the case and knowing the nuances and also seeing the big picture. So it's a combination. If there's infidelity and in cheating, does that change how a prenup or a divorce happens? Rarely. You know, most prenups don't deal with that. I have seen one case where the husband and the wife entered into a prenup where the wife was concerned about the husband's faithfulness. Before they were married, she was concerned about it. She had reason <laughs> that's, that's not a good sign. That's a bad sign right there. So they put in a provision in their prenup that said if the husband is proved to have committed adultery, then he needs to pay contractual alimony to his wife of $25,000 a month for the rest of her life. Extraordinary penalty. Well, he couldn't help himself. He went and he cheated. And he was suing to set aside that provision of the agreement as being unfair, ended up settling but he was looking at paying 25000 a month for the rest of his life. And he was a wealthy guy, but not that wealthy. And that was a lot of money for a long period of time. They were young. They were in their early 30s. So he was looking at paying, what is that, 300000 a year for who knows how long. But most of the time, that's not in prenup. That's rare. In a divorce case, generally speaking throughout the country, adultery is a grounds for divorce. It's a reason that a court can undo a marriage. But we have in all 50 states now what we call no-fault divorce. So you don't need to prove a fault-based reason for divorce. You can if you want to. Adultery is one of them. And our law and many laws around the United States hold that adultery or fault in the breakup of the marriage can be a factor in unequally dividing community property. So in Texas, we have community property that doesn't have to be equally divided. 
it can be unequally divided in favor of one spouse or the other. Our law sort of puts over an overlay over a divorce case saying, what has the innocent spouse been deprived of by virtue of the adultery or the cruelty or the abuse of the spouse at fault? Sometimes you lose health insurance, you lose life insurance, you lose accruals and retirement plans, club memberships, just the money that the, maybe the adultering spouse makes. So those can be programmed into the way the judge divides property and the way a case is settled. From a practical point of view, a lot of people who have been caught or almost caught committing adultery, they don't want to have that exposed. So they'll favorably settle just to keep from having to answer any questions. Well, one thing with prenup, and I initiated working with you uh, on my prenuptial agreement, is thinking about all these things in the future. I just did a will recently. I started working on it. And I was like, it was sad, but also exciting. Like to think about, okay, if I die, like Neville's going to get my Bitcoin. My friend's going to get my chair. Like, it, uh, like I want to party at my funeral. It's kind of interesting to have to think through a lot of those things. One story that you mentioned to me, and I, I was trying to remember it and tell someone because it was just unbelievable, was that someone waited to die just based on their prenup or that they, they married an older man. Yes. I recall that story that we talked about earlier. What happened was a lady comes into my office. She's 27 years old and it's middle of an afternoon. And she says, I need a divorce. I said, that's what we do. And she says, well, I'm married to an older man. I said, it happens. You know, I, <laughs> I see it. He says, well, he's a lot older. I said, okay, how old is he? Well, he's 93. She's 27. I said, well, that's a record. There was Anna Nicole Smith and Howard Marshall. I think it was Howard Marshall, Mr. Marshall. Not that case, but you know, she was a young- That was really big, yeah. Playmate, and he was a rich oil man. Not that, this is not that case at all. It's a completely private case. The most fascinating part about that case, there's a couple of things, is that this 27-year-old young woman had been married to this now 93-year-old man for 12 years. So back into that math, she was 15 and he was 81. That's extraordinary. And a 15-year-old now in Texas cannot get married except with the consent of the judge. In fact, anybody under 18 can't. But in those days, a 15-year-old could get married with the consent of her or his parents or a parent. So her mother consented to the marriage and she had a prenup. And the idea is a 15-year-old sign a prenup because minors cannot enter into contracts legally. Well, her mother ratified it for her. And then when she got 18, it was ratified again by her and it became sort of a valid prenup by virtue of this thought that it ratified by a parent who controlled the child's legal destiny and then re-ratified by her when she got to be 18. So we're challenging a prenup some 12 years after this 15-year-old gets married because it had a provision that his wealth would go to her if he died, but if she filed for divorce, she would get nothing. So he was obviously trying to stay married to her. And we ended up going to trial and the judge found that the prenup was valid and gave her nothing. And then we appealed that to a court of appeals and the court of appeals reversed it and said, you cannot enter into a prenup that denies your right to enter into the judicial system, which is what this did. If you file, you forfeit. We had a stinging dissent from one of the justices saying they signed it, it was ratified, it's a post-up, it's a prenup, it should have been upheld under its clear terms. The Supreme Court did not look at that case and did not take it. They looked at it and they decided not to overturn the case. We went back to trial and we got a very significant award from the judge, a you know, multi-million dollar award of the community property that had been generated from the elderly man's separate estate that would have been heard had she just waited. The irony of all this, I don't know if I told you this epilogue, it's a very sad epilogue, that this lady, after all this had been gone, she got her money, she got into a big fight with her partner and committed suicide right after she got the money, I mean, almost the same day. And then the very next morning, the elderly man died of natural causes. He actually outlived her by a day, but it's just a tragic saga of um, a lot of messed up situations and people. It's unbelievable. It's an extraordinary but true story. What are most people getting divorced when they come into your, uh, to your office? What are the reasons? You know, I think the biggest reason ultimately is, I really see sort of three, and then maybe I could rank them. What I see with the older people, and I, I say that, the people who've been married 20 to 30 or more years, you see a gradual drifting apart in the relationship that happens over a period of time. Maybe one of them puts his or her career in front of the marriage and the family. Maybe the other one puts the children in front of the other spouse and the family. I don't want to be stereotypical here, but maybe the mom is a devoted mom that puts all of her attention on the children to the perhaps some exclusion of the husband. And the husband puts his time and energy and focus and spirit, if you will, into a business and they drift apart and they find themselves sort of in a different spot after the children leave. I see that a lot. 
I see people fighting over what to do with money a lot, and studies show that that is the number one reason. And then I see, as I mentioned earlier, adultery. You know, I think the adultery is sort of a symptom of that phenomena of the couple drifting. It's like a grain of sand at a time through the hourglass. Eventually, it all gets through and there's nothing left in the top cell. They wake up and they find themselves not really knowing each other that well. So the antidote to that is to stay connected. And though you need to raise kids and you need to have a job, you need to stay connected with your spouse or your partner as much as you possibly can. Surprise trips, long trips, trips with the kids, trips without the kids, just things like that to stay, I say, emotionally dependent. I think one of the aspects of being a good spouse is to be vulnerable to the other spouse, to you know, give up enough of you to become vulnerable. And when you do that, there's an emotional connection that lasts through a lot of you know, drifting, which can happen. The two things that made me wonder about is like, what else have you observed in healthy relationships or ones that maybe don't lead to divorce? Isn't your day pretty sad? I felt kind of sad for you. Every day someone comes in and is like, oh, this person I, I loved, now I don't, now I want to take everything or I want to split it up and kind of like a tough thing, it sounds like. You're spot on with that. But I'll tell you what, you know, for the first many years when I was being a divorce lawyer, I would maybe every quarter, and I didn't really regulate it that much, but every three or four months, I would get just myself depressed. I didn't like this. I didn't want to do this. I wasn't happy. It affected me personally. And I was taking on a lot of the personal aspects of the cases of the people. And it's like a heart surgeon who saws into somebody's heart and cuts out a heart and puts in a new heart. You get used to that as a heart surgeon. And I think over a period of years, you sort of get used to it and it becomes a business. You take on your client's case, but you don't let it emotionally affect you because you're right. It is a sad thing and it can get to you if you let it. So you fight hard. You're a vigilant advocate for your client's rights. You're a counselor behind the scenes to counsel the client through difficult times. And I think fully a half of being a divorce lawyer is dealing with the person who's going through with what's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to that person. Not always. A lot of studies show that the most traumatic thing that affects a spouse in his or her capacity as a spouse is a divorce. It's emotionally worse than a death of a spouse. The loss, the betrayal, the uncoupling, the continuing contact that can be abrasive and difficult and hurtful. Getting people through that is sort of an art form that's not just practicing law, but it's you know helping people through a difficult situation. These are good people in a bad situation. You're like half divorce lawyer, half therapist. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, when I teach my law students at the first class, I say fully a half of practicing family law, which is the course you know I teach, is dealing with these people who are going through the worst part of their lives. And you are a therapist to some extent, and you're a coach, and you're a counselor. And you're their advocate and their champion. So it's a multi-role that lawyers have done properly. And in, in divorce law versus criminal law, is it a different burden of proof or is it more like you end up doing a lot of mediation? What is why you ended up choosing that over criminal? Yeah, there's a lot of mediation in divorce cases. And ultimately people, almost every judge in the state of Texas requires you to go to mediation before you can have a trial. It kind of calls out the cases that ought to be settled. So a lot of them now are settling in mediation because a good mediator can help people see that it's usually better to work something out that involves a compromise than it is going and having a binary result where there is a winner and a loser on any given array of topics. In criminal law, it's binary. You know, it's guilty or not guilty most of the time when you go to trial. Sometimes you have mistrials. Sometimes you have hung juries. Sometimes you have plea bargains. I guess, what have you learned about a healthy, long-lasting relationship? It's not like you had a few things there. I know you mentioned you've been divorced too. I was divorced after a lengthy marriage. And I think perhaps that was related in some part to the drifting that you see from a hardworking me and a wife and a great mom who focused her attention mainly on the children, I felt. I think looking back on that, that was a sad and difficult moment. So, you know, if you take that as a cause, it's never a singular cause. It's always a lot of different things. You know, keeping that connection going is really important. There was some sort of something that made, you know, a spouse marry another spouse. It drew them to that person and they connected in a lot of different ways. You know, they became friends, they laughed, they enjoyed each other's company, they had a spiritual connection between the two of them. And keeping that together is critical. Not taking things seriously, not getting in arguments where you draw the line and don't speak for days, breaking through difficult moments, learning to say you're sorry, sincerely meaning it, seeking sort of a daily kind of reassessment. And if you need reconciliation of back where you were, don't let it drift would be my theme there. I like what you said earlier too about surprises. I was reading, you know, Harville Hendricks, 
Getting the Love You Want. I've heard of it, yes, but I haven't read it. Yeah, him and uh, I don't remember his wife's name. I was just reading an article about him and they said one of the best things in a relationship uh, is to surprise the other person. Yeah. But you can't do it regularly, otherwise it's not a surprise. Yes. But like, you know, getting flowers. I do flowers every few weeks. Or at night, one of the things he said I thought was interesting is just looking at the person and, and at night saying like, here are the things I appreciate about you. It's something I did with my fiance last night. And it's a little weird. It's definitely a little awkward, but it's like, oh, it was vulnerable. And I think that's something you touched on as well, yeah. uh, which is hard in a relationship. I think letting the other spouse know that is really important. A lot of times spouses think that the other person's love for them is somehow drifting or is not there, or they're moreover, they're not appreciated for what they're doing, whether it be something to help out help out around the house, provide, clean up, arrange for anything. And it's going unrecognized and unnoticed. And that builds over time. So doing what you did there is really smart. I just gave my wife some flowers for Valentine's Day and she was so excited. And I'm thinking, why don't I do this more often? I need to. You made me wonder, how many people come to you and say, I'm divorced, I hate this guy. And then they, they stay together. You know, I would say if I had to look at and just answer that directly, about one out of 20 and I think a lot of that is by the time that somebody's going through a difficult situation and they've made themselves into the office of a divorce lawyer, they're pretty far down the path. So I don't see a lot of reconciliations. But in that one out of 20, in fact, I had one at the courthouse. We had settled the divorce case. We had a settlement. And we were taking it to the divorce judge to finalize it. And the clients uh, reconciled there at the courthouse in the courtroom before the judge. In fact, it was kind of funny because the judge didn't see this coming and had already, in the midst of this process, as it was beginning actually, signed their divorce decree. So they were literally divorced as the judge signed the decree, and then they reconciled tearfully and hugged each other and called off their divorce after the judge had literally divorced them. But what the judge did was he just kind of tore the signature line off of their final divorce decree and sort of undivorced them right there on the spot. Doesn't happen very often. But, you know, a, a lot of people do. They get mad. They flare up. They file for divorce, they're extremely angry, something horrible has happened to them, or they think it, and then they settle back down and say, you know what, and Texas requires a 61-day waiting period to get a divorce. Once you file, you have to wait huh. 61 days. And the idea behind that is, hey, you really need to think about it before you do this, because what you're going through right now is bad, but what you're trying to get into, that is a divorce, might be worse. So think it through for at least 60 days, and then see if you want to do it. Sometimes it's difficult that it is to be going through a marriage. It's more difficult and more painful to actually get the divorce. I'm trying to think about your situation because you, you were a divorcer and you've been divorced, which is really interesting. I guess I was curious what you learned about relationships or what did you teach your kids about relationships from what you've experienced? At the time I had two, uh, I still do have two adult children and it was a very difficult situation for them and kind of work them through that. And they were stunned by it and they were affected by it and they were hurt by it. So there was some healing that had to go on between myself and them. They learn lessons from watching what can happen to what they thought was a secure, happy family that ended up not being together on and on perpetually. And I think they pick up from what they saw in that situation instances how they can help the, you know, their own now marriages stay together, stay connected, keep that connection going. So hopefully learn by, by watching you know, what had happened in my relationship with their mom. It's hard to talk about this right now too, but um, it's been 10 or 12 years right now, kind of lost track of my years. And I have five wonderful grandchildren from these uh, adult children and they're doing extremely well and they're awesome kids and the grandkids are awesome and everybody seems to be doing well. It takes time though sometimes, it takes time. Since you've seen divorces, you've been divorced, you've taught students and all these things like, how do you recommend people choose their partners? It's something unknown and I'll, I'll start out by saying that, but there is some sort of indescribable connection that materializes between two people that is some sort of a spark or a chemistry that allows them to be greater than you know the one plus one that they are just from a, a binary counted up approach. It's hard to, for me to describe that, but there are different people who draw connections to other people that I've seen. It's that sparkle, that spark, that something that happens that brings them together, whether it be personality or humor or connectivity in any possible way. It's a little magical. But the hard part is when that goes away and, you know, when that initial excitement and euphoria goes away and you start living your everyday, day-to-day -day life and things happen that are not so good or overtly bad and getting through those moments, you need to find sometimes different ways to do that. It's difficult for me to talk about, but it's not controversial. And that is, you know, a strong sexual relationship between two people. Yeah, studies show, this is sort of clinical at this level, but also I think we can all understand it. 
it is that sort of mystical, spiritual connectivity that arises between two people in a sexual setting that also creates a very strong unified bond. So keeping that in play for a couple I found universally as an observer, people going through divorces is something that they often lack. Or that's part of the drifting process that I've described earlier that it becomes less important, which is biological to some extent, but it's also jobs and neighbors and church and children and organizations and activities and sports can all get in the way of that. And I think it's important to keep that in place. I think a lot of people like myself, I'm, I'm getting married and how divorce happens. And within my life, like everyone on my side of the family has been divorced, like almost every single person. And then on my fiance side, no one's ever been divorced. I think it's scary for both. Yeah. My parents had were married 65 years to each other and uh, traveled the world, lived a wonderful life and died within a few days of each other. I mean, just check the box of life so very well. My first wife's parents lived uh, extremely long lives together. In fact, my mother-in-law from that marriage is still alive. And so no divorce was uh, in either side of our family. So it was uh, kind of a unique situation that a lot of people had to realize and adjust to. And that's difficult too. Because how did you come to that realization? How did you make efforts to maybe fix it? Again, it's one of those things where I've always described it as this grain of sand at a time. Counseling, I find, didn't work. I didn't know what was going on at the time, but I'd gotten to the point where I didn't want to be counseled. That's ineffective. And the lesson we can learn there is to make sure that you're not in that situation because there's a lot of good marriage counselors who can give a lot of good advice and give you procedures and exercises. But to me, it was artificial and wasn't working. Everything, and I was talking with my brother last night, and he's been divorced. Every relationship, most relationships start hot, right? Most relationships, when you get right. a new car or a new relationship, right. you're like, oh, all these new things. Mm -hmm. It's hard because in, in a relationship over time, you're like, oh man, it used to be so great. And it's like, well, that's everything. And so I do think it's an interesting challenge in all relationships about like, how do you keep it surprising? How do you be vulnerable? How do you keep growing and having these experiences that you want to, it gets better over time, not worse. It would be awesome if all that came naturally to us all the time, but we get distracted with things that are right in front of us. And we forget about flowers and we forget about going to dinner in the middle of the week or a spontaneous trip to the Bahamas or something like that or Mexico or something because we're all busy, tied up. And it causes what I kind of the theme of what I was saying, this drift away. But if we can kind of bring ourselves back into realizing how important this relationship is, how important this other person is, particularly if you have children and keeping that connectivity together is very, very important. Sometimes you just have to do it. You have to decide to do it. Yeah. The feeling is not there as much as it used to be. I do want to talk about prenups. That was the original yeah. we connected. Maybe talk about like just the overview of what the prenup process is for people who've heard about it, but aren't as clear about it. Well, prenups can be the least romantic thing fiancés do, and it can really be <laughs> sticky and tacky <laughs> and nasty and ugly. The theme that some people perceive when one side asks for a prenup is he must think or she must think that we're going to end in divorce. And therefore, it's just a pre-planned divorce. And I don't want to be a part of that. And that's not necessarily the case at all. Texas has an imprint on every marriage, a set of laws that govern marital property rights and support and things like that. Who's going to own what? Who's going to have to handle what if there is a divorce? And that becomes your prenup if you don't have one. It's just called Texas law. What our state allows, as the other 49 do as well, is for fiancés to come in and set a new array of laws to be governed for this particular marriage. And sometimes you want to say, well, you know, income that I have from stocks that I own prior to marriage, the interest and dividends on those could be community property under Texas law. Well, maybe you want to change that to separate property. We allow that. Income from earnings is typically community property. Maybe you want to have that be separate property. And you can change that law. So you can build your own set of laws that seem fair for your circumstance. Texas law, as well as the other 49 states to a great extent, have the same set of laws. It's called the Uniform Premarital Agreement Act. It's been passed by all 50 states, and it's real similar throughout the states. And basically, you can do anything that doesn't violate public policy, require the commission of a crime or something like that. An example would be, in the case that I gave you with the young lady marrying the older man, they had a prenup that violated public policy, which mm. is you can't put a contract in place that provides a penalty for somebody who files a case for divorce. Mm. That's a violation of public policy. You can't pre-agree on how to handle children. Custody of children has to be dealt with at the time to see, you know, what the situation is, what's in the children's best interest. And you can't do anything to affect child support as well. But other than that, it's sort of a free-for-all. And I see a lot of prenups with people who have been married two and three times before, one, two, or three times before, because they've had a very bad experience with 
a prior divorce. And they say, I don't want to go through that again. I just want to get a prenup and I want to have everything clean in case our marriage ends in divorce. We'll kind of know where we stand and we're not going to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars fighting over our property and all of our different support rights and things like that. Do you think everyone should get a prenup? I am a highly skilled divorce lawyer. You know, I teach it, I speak it, I write on it. I have books that I've written on family law. I'm a professor at two law schools on family law. I don't have a prenup. I'm very comfortable with that. I have no, no interest personally in that at all, but I can see where people do and I completely get it. And also sometimes the state of Texas, which writes this prenup for you, that's going to be fine for a lot of people. I think it's something to look at. I think it's something to be careful about. You know, with everything, there's a good and a bad. And there's a bad with the prenup too, because it sends a signal that somebody at least is not so sure this is going to go. And a better attitude would be, no matter what, our marriage is going to go until death do us part. It breaks down just a little bit of some of the vulnerability and trust that's necessary to form the bonds that creates a good marriage. Did you have a prenup in your first marriage? No. no we were young kids with nothing. And uh, how was so that divorce proceeding? It was very easy, very simple. I did my very best to be within the parameters of Texas law again, extremely generous. I don't know whether it was perceived as extremely generous, but I think it was. And it led to a very quick, quiet settlement within a 61-day period, which is the minimum of waiting. Time. I like that. Well, the other thing that I learned from talking to you before was the community property. It wasn't, I wasn't as quite clear. If you've made money like that, one of the stories you said earlier before the marriage, that is yours. You get to keep that as long as you can prove that what it is. Was before. Is that true for most states or is that just Texas? That is true for almost all the states. California? Uh-huh. California has the same community property system with a few differences. What are some of the more unusual things you've seen in a prenuptial agreement? The prenup that I sort of start with right now is a, is a really bad prenup. It's so good, it's bad. Through 40 years of litigating premarital agreements and taking premarital agreements done by others and seeing how they're good and how they're bad, negotiating settlements from prenups, I have learned how to draft. And I say bad. It's more of a badass prenup. It's really a tight, <laughs> awful prenup that really doesn't make any provision whatsoever for the joint accumulation of property. So that's kind of a starting point. And a lot of older people, maybe in their 60s or 70s, 50s even, they're remarrying, they've been through a bad experience, they have adult children, they're concerned about their separate property, that might be something that provides for them. So you completely sanitize the relationship from any jointly owned property. So the wife has her property and income, the husband has his property and income. And in that situation, you usually replace that with some sort of a, a payment up front, Usually there's somebody that has a lot of money and somebody that doesn't. So the somebody who has a lot of money gives some money up front to the other person, and that becomes their separate property. It's a savings, a nest egg. And then payments are made along the way from the rich person to the not-so-rich person. And then upon divorce, there's usually a lump sum payment or payments over time to kind of substitute for the fact that you've taken away the marital property or community property is what we call it in Texas. So you've just wiped away the community property system, but replaced it with a series of finite payments that are easy to work with if there's a divorce. And so as I was doing your questionnaire and working through my prenuptial agreement, the one thing I was trying to figure out is like, how do you figure out that amount? I felt very like conflicted. Like, do I want to pay like a performance? Like, hey, if you did really well this year, you get more. Or, like if each year you stay with me, you get extra money. And then there's like a 10-year incentive bonus. It gets strange. I just, and how do yeah. you even think about that? Well, it's so different from each you know, set of people who are going through a divorce because everybody has different money and different cash flow and different assets. But, you know, you try to put something in there that imitates maybe what would have been a fair settlement. It always seems to be a little bit less than what it should be, in my view. But that's just kind of my perspective of seeing this hundreds of times. But there's no one way to do it. I hate to kind of give up that question like that, but there's no single way to do it. Everybody's way different. I see a lot of professional athletes who um, are getting married for the first time or the second time. And a lot of them are at the end of their career. And they've made millions and millions of dollars playing a sport. I counsel a lot of those, don't do a prenup. You've already earned all your separate property money. Oh, interesting. And now you're, you're going to go into a retirement situation with assets that were largely earned before marriage. Why do you need a prenup? I just counseled a very wealthy professional basketball player who was on the brink of retirement. His wife was owning a prenup with all these payments to be made to her, like I described earlier, big payments, because he was very wealthy. And I said, you don't need to say no to that. You just need to say, sweetheart, we don't need a prenup. We'll just be married without a prenup. We don't need one. And if they have a divorce, he technically doesn't have to pay her? Everything he had earned prior to marriage would have been his separate property. So he was in a pretty good shape without a prenup. So 
you know, not everybody needs one and they are sticky. Yeah. You know, so he avoided a sticky situation with some, what I hope to be good advice. Do you see people getting divorced when the prenup comes up? I have seen um, some marriages not happen because of the prenup coming up. Feelings get hurt in the process of negotiating a prenup. Maybe the non-moneyed spouse asks for too much or the moneyed spouse doesn't offer enough and feelings get mm. hurt. And you must not respect me. You must not think I'm worth anything. I don't want to be married to you. I had one where we negotiated a premarital bonus payment upon signing the prenup. And my client, who was the non-moneyed spouse, she took the $100,000 payment and then refused to marry him. So she got $300,000, which I never saw coming. That's some like jujitsu stuff right there. That's like <laughs> some black magic. Of, uh... I, I think she had it all planned, but she didn't let me know about it. But the process of getting the prenup was so distasteful to her that she had decided that she did not want to marry this guy. But she also realized that if she signed the prenup, this is like days before the marriage, that um, she would get $100,000. So she signed it, got the $100,000, and then refused to marry. And I've had cases where an eight-month pregnant woman at the church getting dressed for her wedding, people are starting to arrive at the church, and she's presented a prenup by her fiancé's lawyer with tear stains from her tears on the prenup. Years later, that being litigated as to whether it's valid, Eight months pregnant at the church, seeing it for the first time, was found to be a valid prenup under Texas law. Amazing. I was on her side, too. I was astounded by that. Now, the judge later interpreted the prenup in a way that was very favorable to her, but that alone was stunning to me. Any books on relationship or divorce that you recommend people to check out? or pre No. In a word. <laughs> and then if people are thinking about getting divorced, I, I know my audience, will, none of you are going to get divorced, but if you are, or thinking about getting a prenuptial agreement, where should they, they go to find out more about you? My website is www.fullandwider.com. That's a good, he's my partner. We're, our firm name is Full and Wider Wilhite. Full and Wider is F-U-L-L-E-N-W-E-I-D-E-R. A hard word to spell, but it's our name. We have offices here in Austin and also in Houston. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. And if you did, send this episode to one of your best legal friends. And go check out fullandwider.com. That's F-U-L-L-E-N-W-E-I-D-E-R.com. I'm not even going to try to spell it out, but you can go to okdork.com slash podcast slash 138, and we'll have it linked in the show notes. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go surfing in Hawaii together. And before you go, let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing podcast at okdork.com. I check all the last words of your email. And a final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com as always for making these episodes so great. And thank you to Sean, David, and Mitchell of the Dork Team. And a special shout out to my business partner, Chad, and Suma this week, just letting me know who to man. What's your favorite state? 